This week on Writers Inc. I can't just write a whole, I can't just have my career be 20 books that are like all survival based stories. It, it would, it would get old. And also, um, I, I would, I would got to imagine I would eventually start running out of ideas. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, I'm a little disappointed. It's been a while since I heard some construction noise coming on the show here. Yeah, you sound like my building inspector. <laughs> <laughs> so so he, he shut us down again. Um, nothing real serious. It's just, you know, we're right here on the ocean. Like I can see the water outside of my, my office window and, and there's very strict building code that you have to adhere to when you're within a couple of miles of, of the water, you know, because metal rusts and it, it corrodes very fast. Um, so these guys are, they started putting up the porch and the inspector came by and said, whoa, 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 you have to use stainless steel something or other instead of what they were using. And it went from like 70 cents per piece to like $7 per piece and they had to special order them um so all these trucks loaded up and they they sadly drove away and that was i, I think monday and like i haven't seen anybody since so it, it's very quiet here right now <laughs> I, I i i'm kind of enjoying it though because i got the, the holy grail stephen king sent me a copy of his, his latest book billy summers um and i, I yeah, to me that's like it's such a treat to just read any kind of king book because I, I get so many arcs and like i start cringing when i read some of them because i see mistakes that i would have fixed and things like that and like with with king that that rarely happens um, but he's doing something and the only reason i'm bringing this up is because he's doing something in this book that i think every writer should check out uh, the main character is actually writing a book within the book um so spoiler alert stephen king wrote a book about a, a writer um <laughs> but <laughs> the, the unique thing about it though is is the voice on this character's book is so completely different from Stephen King's voice like it, it's a total 180 like if the, the book that's being written by the character in there if, if that were actually printed out and submitted to agents it would get passed by everybody because it, it's filled with you know typographic gram, grammatical errors and you know problems with paragraph spacing and like literally every you know problem that you could create you know writing a first draft is in there and but you know then it bounces back to King's voice you know, which is, you know, about damn near perfect, you know, because he's, he's been doing this forever. And, and just the contrast between the two, because they obviously both came out of his head as, as far as we know, um, it's just, it's, it's an amazing thing. So like I'm, I'm reading it as, as a reader and then I'm also got my, my student hat on and I'm, I'm taking notes and just trying to figure out how he did this because he did it in misery as well. But just, you know, the, the Paul Sheldon book was, was there and it was different. Um, but you could, it still sounded like King and like this just, it sounds totally different and it's, it's an amazing thing. So Billy Summers, I, I forget when it comes out. Um, I, I think in August, but definitely check that one out. I, I wonder if, if it has anything to do with like when, when you get to his, status and when you've accomplished as much as king has like you almost have to manufacture your own obstacles it would seem 
Well, he's definitely he's definitely challenging himself, and and I can see him writing a letter to his his editor saying, "I know that I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did this wrong. It's meant to be that way. Tell the copy editor not to touch it, you know, because like you have to have that conversation, or the copy editor will go through that book and and fix it. Um, I I don't know if that still happens. That you know, for for him, they probably don't do anything at this point. They're probably afraid to move a comma around. But you know, like if I were to try and do that, you know, I would definitely have to to let somebody know that it was intentional. Um, but yeah, and I'm sure he's trying to challenge himself. I mean, he's got, I, I don't even know at this point, 60, 70 books under his belt. And, you know, you want to try something new. That's what keeps it exciting. Um, so that, that's where his head is probably at. Yeah. Speaking of new and exciting, are you guys following the stuff with Disney? Yeah, uh, I, I have. This is fascinating stuff. Can you kind of fill the listeners in on Yeah, because I'm not totally sure. So Yeah, so I, I kind of, I, I keep starting articles and reading them and they, they, they make me really twitchy, so I have to put them down because it's it's one of those things that really bugs me. But, you know, companies are constantly scooping up other companies and buying them up. And, you know, a lot of them have obviously ended up under the, the Disney umbrella, including publishing companies. And what apparently is happening is they're, they're not paying royalties on, on a lot of these books. You know, like they bought the initial publishing company or they're, you know, three companies deep. You know, they bought this one that and that company bought another one and that company bought another one. So books written a long time ago you know like it, it's all just so, so convoluted like they're just at this point they're not paying royalties on a lot of this stuff and a lot of authors are just now figuring this out um, and I can totally see that happening because I, I rarely look at my royalty statements and I know I should um, but you know like I, I don't drill down and make sure that I'm getting paid on every single book or project that I worked on and you know like it just it gets to be too much you know especially when you've got you know multiple publishers all over the world and that kind of thing so I guess this slipped under the radar for a while but Disney came out with a, an official stance basically saying that well we bought the intellectual property but not the obligations behind that intellectual property and, and that is that's a huge red flag and you know just to put that in perspective you know like hmh just got bought by uh, news corp which is harper collins um like they could technically use that same argument like if that argument actually holds up in court you know they could do the same thing and they could say well we bought hmh we bought their books but we didn't buy the you know the, the obligations there so we're not going to pay any royalties on it um, so I, I've got a feeling that this is something that could actually go, you know, as far as the Supreme Court to, to actually get a decision. And, and, you know, hopefully they, you know, they, they rule on the side of the authors here, because if they don't like, a, you know, this giant pyramid could, could collapse. So that, wow. that's basically where it's at. And, and I wrote um, like I, back in the day, I wrote a couple of uh, tie in novels to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But those were work for hire. So, like, I'm not really caught up in that. But, I, you know, a lot of the people that I knew back uh, back then, you know, they, they are caught up in it. They wrote, you know, Star Wars tie ins. They wrote Buffy novels. They wrote, you know, a lot of those. And, you know, they're just they're not getting paid on them. And they should. I just can't understand. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't understand a lot of things, but I, I really I, I don't understand how you could make the distinction between owning the property but not the contracts that they were created under. Yeah, it's, it's well, you know, it happened to Tess Garrison with Gravity, too. You know, like, she sold Gravity, the book rights, and you know, it got optioned by, I think it was Miramar or whatever the, the studio was. Um, but that studio got bought up by somebody else, and they got bought up by somebody else, and the movie eventually got made, and she didn't see a dime under it, you know, from it. And they, they fell back on that same kind of argument. Um, and I think that one actually was upheld in the court. Um, you know, so so who knows? You know, there's there's a lot of very smart people on both sides of this. You know, and everybody's making a grab for the money. But you know, like if if they were to, if authors were to lose on this, authors aren't going to write tie-in novels anymore. Like that's going to go away as a business. Yeah. Um. And, and I'm not sure what it means for you know some of these other publishers that are buying up other publishers. You know, they're that that's happening too. So like they could all use that same argument. So it's a really ugly problem. Yeah, that could set a really bad precedent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like. 
if, if it goes the what we would consider to be the wrong way, I guess. Like yeah. that's that's really messed up. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll see what happens with that. Um, so to put a smile on my face, I listened to Joanna Penn the other day because um, I'm, I'm always learning stuff you know, when, when I listen to her. And she brought up something really unique. We were talking about Spotify, you know, creating the subscription services for pod, for podcasts and, you know, all these other guys kind of jumping on that, that same boat. Um, she had brought up putting out an audio book using that. And that, that's something I never thought of. You know, like a podcast like this, I, I can't imagine charging people to, to listen to us. You know, if, if anything, I'm, we need to pay them to, to stay tuned. <laughs> um, but, it, but an audio book, I could see you know, an author doing that and putting it up there and, and charging either per episode or some kind of, you know, fee that covers the, the whole thing. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably going to be more of a moneymaker than something like Audible or some of these other platforms might be. Um, and as a consumer, I could see myself doing that. I could see myself listening to an audiobook on Spotify, you know, for sure. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think you can do it yet, but she brought it up as a, as a possibility. And I'm going to definitely research that. I don't know about you guys. I just wonder, like, how much how much time is it before Spotify really tries to compete with that space like altogether like the audiobook space like I think I think that could be a really interesting thing too um, but, it could but have it, a lot to do with the the authors you know like if a ton of authors jump on board and you know put audiobooks up there like Spotify might not even have this on their radar at this point but if, if they turn around and they see a hundred thousand audiobooks on their platform you know somebody's gonna gonna jump on that yeah I mean it's definitely a very interesting thing and it's Obviously, none of us thought about that when we were talking about the whole Spotify thing. And so I think that uh, it's going to be interesting to see, like, what kind of results she gets. And I'm sure other people are going to try this since she mentioned it. <laughs> so yeah. it, it w I'm sure we're going to have a lot of, uh, you know, data coming out from it. Oh, what do you think, Jay? Well, you know, the barrier for audio, uh, audiobooks specifically, has always been the um, network effect, right? Like, um, if you have a book on, um, if you have the Audible app, then that's yeah. where you listen to to books. Period. Like, and there there've been there've been attempts at sort of self serving apps or uh, standalone um, solutions to listening to an audiobook, but they never work because they're not tied into your Amazon account. Yeah. But the interesting thing with Spotify is that Spotify already has that problem solved because yep. chances are, if you're a music fan. You already have the Spotify app. Like it's not a, an additional thing that you would have to do. So if they can get critical mass of of fans of audiobooks to listen through the Spotify app, then yeah, it's game on. And I and I think the the stranglehold that a that Audible and ACX has had on the medium uh, is going to come to an end. Well, for me as a consumer, like I, I've got an Audible uh, account and I get two credits per month. So I basically listen to two audiobooks. But usually around the third week of the month, those two audiobooks are gone. You know, and, and, I'm, and I'm trying to find some other way to, to occupy my time while I'm out on my run every day. Um, so I can see that that's, that's where I would start exploring Spotify and, and some of the, these other things. Um, on Six Figure Authors, they brought up using YouTube, you know, for an audiobook, which I never thought of before either. But it, it sounds like it's fairly simple to, you know, you throw your graphic for your book cover up there as your, your video and you, you take all the audio files and link them together and, and put your book up there and, and let people listen to it um, and, and possibly collect advertising revenue. So there, there's a lot of new new ideas out there that, you know, I'm currently exploring with Forsaken because that's the only audio book I actually own, but it's a good test case for me because I can try these different things and see what sticks. Yeah, I'm really interested to see just like in general where Spotify is headed because I've heard, uh, uh, you know, I listen to Joe Rogan a lot and he obviously is really involved with Spotify now and he's said on a few different episodes, he's he keeps hinting, hey, just wait, Spotify has some things they're working on. And 
and I've even had like a couple of pop-ups come up on my Spotify. I think I showed one to Jay where it was like asking me about live streaming and stuff like that. And so I think that they're really going to make some moves in the different types of audio space and they're going to be, and I know for me, like, and, and Jay kind of meant when Jay was talking about the app, you know, I used to do, I, I've been, been doing Spotify, Spotify for music forever, but I would use Apple podcast for my podcast. When Spotify started getting big in podcasts, I just migrate everything over. So I get rid of an app on my phone. And so like I could see myself, even though I have a ton of books on audible and uh, already in that library, like I could see myself doing something similar just to try to get rid of even more clutter and get everything in one place again. And I know? have mixed feelings about Spotify because I don't feel like they they adequately compensate artists. No, I don't either. Um, I, 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 I mean, they can justify it legally, but I don't ethically. I think it comes up way short. So I have yeah. I have really mixed feelings about Spotify and and uh, the precedent that they've set with the music industry and where that might land for the publishing industry. Well, I think it boils over to, um, I mean, any type of subscription service where they're doing payouts like this. I mean, you could say the same thing. I mean, a lot of people make that same argument about Kindle Unlimited. Um, you know, uh, how, I mean, how much do people get off when stuff's on Netflix, gets streamed? Like, I think it's just kind of, it, it, it's it's the unfortunate reality we're in. Like, if you're a consumer, it's great because you have all these choices. I mean, you could make the argument it's not that great. Um, but uh, but from the artist, it's just kind of the reality where we are. And is there really a great solution to fix? I don't know, you know, because I've seen some Spotify royalty statements from friends who like, get a lot of plays on there and it's brutal. Like it's, it's, it's not good, you know, but they've had to bands have to, you know, they've had to really adapt. And obviously over the last year, that's been tough, you know, cause they haven't been able to depend on being on the road and stuff, but um, you know, that's really how they have to make their money now. And that's why when you go to a concert, it's $60 for a t-shirt. Like people can't complain about that because you're not buying their records. <laughs> so it's a nice t-shirt. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't wear it. You but. just made me feel really old because you, you mentioned the, the, just the amount of choices that are out there. Like I still remember when there were three channels on television. Right. And, and I remember well, when Bruce, Bruce Springsteen came out with a song called uh, 57 Channels and Nothing's On. And I was like, who's got 57 channels? That's insane. <laughs> That's funny because my mind went straight to thinking about like Blockbuster and like going and you rent one movie or like one video game for the weekend. And that's what you had, you know. And if you I, went there and it wasn't behind the box and you couldn't even get it you'd be pit like that's where my mind went i i so. missed that because that was that was kind of part of the fun you know actually heading to the store and figuring out what was available hitting the pizza store on the way home like absolutely yeah, yeah it was just it, an experience that yeah. uh, kids won't have anymore so. <laughs> little whippersnappers <laughs> all right well all right, let's man. get into some housekeeping and, and then uh get to our guest this week we want to give a nice shout out to kobo writing life uh, Tara and the team up there in Toronto, north of the border, are always so helpful. Uh, if you email them, you're going to get a personalized, uh, expedient response. Uh, you get to set your price. They have great monthly promotional opportunities. And you get to do all of that without having to be exclusive to just Kobo. So if you are interested, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com. We also want to give a nice shout out to two new patrons. Uh, HB Line and Christian Matthews, welcome uh, both of you. Uh, you um, now participating in our monthly Patreon Q&A episode. If you're interested in joining us live to ask your question, head on over to patreon.com slash Writers Inc. Podcast. All right, JD, who is on the deck today? Oh, this is going to be a fun one. We've got Andy Weir. 
Um, and I, I've seen him speak before. I've, I've never interviewed him before, but um, I saw him at a library conference in Chicago a few years back, and he just completely just took over the room. I mean, it, it was like, to me, it felt like a stand-up routine. Like, he felt so comfortable up on that stage. At one point, he was actually making fun of a woman that was doing sign language, like, off to the side of the stage. Like, he was just playing with her to see if, see if she could keep up with them. But, like, he, he did all of this, like, so, you know, he was just so comfortable in his shoes up there. Um, his writing has always really intrigued me because he's obviously a very, very intelligent guy. And he's able to take these, you know, extremely high concepts and, and dumb them down to the point where the rest of us can actually understand them. And, like, that that's a skill set all by itself and it's a very rare thing um and and add to that his 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 sense of humor um you know it makes for a good book and, and hail mary is by far yeah one of the best books i've read in a very very long time like i, I know this is going to get made as a movie you know like you could feel it when you're, you're reading it like it's everything about it it just takes every single box um so he, he hit it out of the park with this one for sure yeah i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna throw my two cents in on the book after the interview but i just wanted to mention uh this was this was kind of a special interview for me because I interviewed Andy Weir maybe five or six years ago before The Martian blew up and uh, and it was it was really cool to kind of watch that ascent like it happened really fast well for us it did probably not for Andy but like just watching him sort of you know he was posting chapters on his blog like he self published that book uh, before it before it got picked up anywhere else and kind of seeing where he is now and uh and there's not a more deserving guy so i i think this is going to be a a really fun conversation yeah i mean that, that story alone is very inspiring to, to anybody that's plugging away right now on their laptop you know working the day job hoping to, to break into the the field um so yeah let, let's not waste any more time here he is andy weir so andy where can i buy an iridian astro torch <laughs> um arid <laughs> I noticed it's trademarked, so I figured it must be it must be available yeah. in the United States somewhere. Yes. Um, well, no, not necessarily. Just because it's trademarked doesn't mean it's in the U.S. It just means <laughs> maybe it has a, a, a maybe there will be uh, Iridian Astro torches at some point in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> oh, excellent! Well, we're uh, f for uh, people who aren't following this yet and are wondering why are they talking about an Astro torch. Uh, this is from Project Hail Mary, your your new book that's. Uh, it's hitting the shelves or will be hitting it depending on when you're listening to this. And uh, man, you did not disappoint. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. Phenomenal. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about Ryland Grace before we get into it. Uh, Ryland Grace is our protagonist. Um, we start off with him. He wakes up in a, a fancy hospital bed uh, with all sorts of tubes up, all sorts of orifices. And he realizes he's been in a coma uh, he has no idea where he is or at this point who he is. He has complete amnesia, no idea what's going on and uh, has to start kind of investigating in his environment. And there's no one else there except for two dead bodies in similar beds. Um, uh, he very quickly, and this isn't much of a spoiler because in the first chapter, he very quickly comes to realize he's aboard a spaceship and uh, and over, he starts to slowly get his memory back bit by bit, and it, he comes to realize that he's aboard a desperate last 
last ditch effort mission to save all of humanity from extinction. So, you know, no pressure. <laughs> this is like, we've already given the spoiler alert, but this is the ultimate spoiler alert here. Uh, yeah, at one mega, point, mega spoiler alert. Mega one here. At one point, Ryland says. <laughs> 1.21 giga spoilers. <laughs> nice. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> he says, uh, option one. Go home, a hero, and save all of humanity. Or option two, go to Arid, save an alien species, and starve to death shortly after. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. That's, uh, uh, he, 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 is, he is left with that decision. <laughs> no, I, you know, when I work with my writing clients, I always talk about the importance of an incredibly difficult choice. I couldn't possibly think of a more difficult choice than that one. Um, does that was that sort of in the works from the beginning, or was that something that kind of came out as you got more deeper into the story? Um, it came out as I got deeper into the story. So for me, I uh, although many people consider me a, a very good writer, I have never considered me a very good writer. I, I feel like I kind of bungled into the industry via The Martian, and I still don't understand why so many people enjoyed 360 pages of algebra questions. <laughs> but um, one of my weaknesses, and I'm acutely aware of it, is character depth. Character depth, growth, development, and the whole nine yards. Um, I mean, at, Mark Watney is the same at the end of The Martian as he was at the beginning of The Martian. He didn't learn any lessons. He didn't undergo any growth. He didn't undergo any change nothing. And he had no depth, really. All you know about him is he's a smart ass and he didn't want to die. That's it. And he's really smart. Okay, that's it. And so that's not character depth. It was still an enjoyable book, it would seem, but it was in entirely plot driven. And I want to I want to get better as an author, you know, before people realize that I'm a hack. And so um, I'm really working actively on my character depth and complexity and growth. And so when I started out Project Hail Mary, Ryland was sort of a blank slate, and I was really concerned about that. But what was cool is as I wrote, he started to develop more and more as a character. And then I went back and rewrote earlier scenes to match the personality that had developed. So I'm really happy with how his personality came out, how he does have depth and complexity and growth, and, you know, the, the super, the, you know, at the end, you know, we learned that he was uh, not not exactly a willing participant in this. And at the end, he has to decide whether or not to do the ultimate self-sacrifice. Um, so it's uh, it, it's all there. And one of the main one of the main bits of personal like writing growth, I suppose, for me is Ryland is the first time I've based a character. Uh, I Ryland is the first time I have created a character just to be a unique character rather than um, my previous two books where both of the protagonists were just basically my personality. Um, Mark Watney is the idealized version of me. He's all the aspects of myself that I like and they're magnified. So I'm kind of smart. He's really smart. I'm, I'm a smart ass. He's a hilarious smart ass and so on. Um, but he doesn't have any of my flaws, and there are many flaws. Jazz Bashara, the main character in, in uh, Artemis, has those flaws, or at least the ones I had when I was her age, when I was in my 20s. I'm pushing 50 now. But basically, I modeled her after my, my complex and many failings of my 20s. And 
And so, and people, uh, uh, that actually, I made her so flawed that a lot of people were turned off by the book. It was hard. They couldn't root for the main character. And, and to me, I was like, oh, I mean, you wouldn't have liked me in my 20s. Because I was basically, yes, she's a, a woman of Saudi descent, but her personality and her, her character flaws were the same that I had back then. Um, so uh, Ryland is my first attempt in a, in, in a full-length novel to make a character that is not at all based on my own personality. Mm. Like I, I made him up and uh, yeah, it felt good. It feels good to be, I, I feel like I'm making incremental progress. It just goes to show you, what, uh, what is it? Um, give a man a book, you entertain him for a night. Teach a man to write, you give him crippling self-doubt for life. <laughs> um, I... I I really want to get better at what I do. <laughs> this is this is a, a bit of a facetious question, but I, I'm going to ask it just to be playful. Why? I mean, you know, you you write The Martian. You, your character's flat. It's it's an incredibly successful book. You could very easily write different versions of The Martian for the rest of your career. So why torture yourself over your character building skills? Um. Well. Uh, good question. I guess I want to be good at my job, you know, and also um, I don't think I could just write um, the Martian over and over again, you know, in different scenarios. I think it would, it would, you know, I think the uniqueness of the Martian was that situation of a, of a, it, it was really interesting because it's a person desperately trying to survive, but I can't just write a whole, I can't just have my career be 20 books that are like all survival based stories. It, it would, it would get old. And also um, I, I would, I would got to imagine I would eventually start running out of ideas on survival issues. It's not like a, it's not like a murder mystery where you have human intellect as the antagonist and all sorts of clever things can happen. If you make a cool detective and detective story, you can write, books until the day you die and have all of them be unique and, and compelling. But if it's just person versus nature, well, there's only so many things that nature has in its bag of tricks, right? Um, so yeah, and and uh, speaking of uh, Project Hail Mary, or sorry, speaking of comparisons, I suppose, um, a lot of people will will see similarities between the Martian and, and Project Hail Mary because they'll see like, oh, okay, he's an astronaut, he's isolated, he's out in space by himself. Um, but uh, I really didn't want to repeat plot points from the Martian. So among other things like Ryland's not out there to, Ryland's not trying to save himself. In fact, it's a suicide mission. He wants to save Earth. And then second off, um, all of his stuff works properly. Like all, all his equipment doesn't break down. He never runs out of food. He doesn't like, cause he's actually on a ship that was designed for this purpose. Unlike Mark Watney, who's using equipment that was designed to last a month and he was using it for about a year and a half. So I just, I really didn't want to have doubled plot beats. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. And and I got to tell you, man, your, your, you know, your work on that character building paid off because I can't ever remember reading a science fiction novel where I started crying uh, about the relationship between an astronaut and a space spider. So I was <laughs> uh, literally brought a tear to my eye. Um, tell us about, I mean, if Ryland was a challenge for you, tell us about building Rocky. 
Okay. Well, in in mega spoiler zone, Rylan <laughs> runs into uh, uh, an alien, an ex, uh, an intelligent alien uh, uh, that is a species. The, uh, their species is basically they're like five-legged spiders about the size of a Labrador retriever, like they're about that big, um, and they have like mineral deposit like craggy like deposits on their exoskeleton and so he nicknames uh, he nicknames the alien rocky uh rocky communicates with something that sounds like whale song he actually has five different sets of vocal cords internally so his species communicates in chords like so you know this chord followed by that one followed by that one is a word and so on um and Basically, the, the core plot of Project Hail Mary, which you should really know if you're at this point in the podcast, because <laughs> if you've gotten this far into the podcast and you haven't read the book, we're, we're just ruining every single plot twist for you. <laughs> but um, basically, there's like a space mold, uh, just a naturally occurring, naturally evolved organism that's like mold, but it lives on the surface of stars and it spores out to other stars. And that it's just like algae in the ocean. And it has uh, seeded onto our star and it's got, it's doubling its population every some amount of time. And it's getting to the point where now the sun is getting visibly dimmer and the, the solar output, the amount of energy hitting Earth is going to get low enough that the biosphere won't be able to survive unless we can find a way to deal with this problem. And they notice that all the stars in our local cluster are having this same issue. They've all been, you know, because astrophage propagates from star to star, um, except Tau Ceti. And they don't know why. For some reason, Tau Ceti and only Tau Ceti seems to have not lost any luminance at all. And that's what the project is about. They send astronauts to Tau Ceti. How do you do an interstellar mission? Well, it helps when you've accidentally found an extraterrestrial life form that's eating your sun and has the ability to store energy as mass and then release it as light. So it's basically the most efficient fuel imaginable. Um, anyway, our hero, uh, Ryland, runs into an alien uh, nicknamed Rocky in the Tau Ceti system because his planet is also, their star is also dimming. They have the exact same problem and they came to the exact same conclusion. Tau Ceti isn't dimming. We should send people to figure out why not. And uh, because of very different reasons, they are both the sole survivors of their missions. Um, and and that that's where the story for me gets really fun because it is top secretly, you know, without anybody knowing it when they buy the book, it's a story of friendship. Yes. It's a buddy road comedy, like, you know, like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby kind of, you know. <laughs> In outer space as aliens. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a buddy movie. Uh, it, it's, it's a story about friendship. They become, they obviously they start to work together. They're both scientists and they're both trying to work together to find out the solution to this. And then they became, they become friends with such a bond that at different times, each of them, uh, well, takes an action that they believe will kill themselves to sacrifice. They, each of them attempts to sacrifice themselves to save the other <laughs> at different times. Yes. Yes. And I don't, uh, I'm going to resist. I, I don't want to talk about the very, very end because it was the cherry on top. It was like it absolutely had to happen. And it was 
perfect. It was the perfect ending. So I want to leave that little bit of mystery for the listener. And I had that I had that ending in mind like while I was still working on the Did first you? act. Oh. Yep. I'm like, this is how it ends. Not sure how I'm gonna get there, but that is the ending. So it felt good to I, I knew exactly where I was headed. Yeah. I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I knew where I was headed. <laughs> well, I'd love to t talk a little bit about that process for you uh, on, on multiple levels. I, I know that a while ago you said that you, uh, you don't start writing till after lunch. You have a sort of a routine. Um, is that still yeah. the case or, and, and is Pretty that much. what you used for, for uh, Project Hill Mary too? Yep. No, no real change in my process. Uh, still, still pretty much uh, when I'm working on a first draft, I try to get a thousand words done a day. I generally don't start writing until after lunch. I have this long list of things I'm quote unquote, not allowed to do until I've made my word count. Uh, no video entertainment of any kind, no woodworking, which is my hobby, my favorite, you know, I like that. No board gaming, which is, well, before the pandemic, I, I, um, board gaming with friends and then during the pandemic it's become even easier to board game with friends because we we now have like um, you know remote board gaming software all installed so now nobody even has to drive to anyone else's house we're actually board gaming more yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no you know the the pre uh the precrastinator in me like uh, the, the i'm thinking like well if if you have a whole list of things you can't do until you write why not write like earlier and then you have more of the day to do those things? Uh, because it just takes me a while to get my brain booted up in the morning. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I'm working in the morning. I'm just not writing. So yeah. I'll be answering fan mail. Um, I'll be uh, or deal dealing with just the, the minutiae of business stuff, like talking to my agent about the Romanian translation rights and, and stuff like that. So that's what I do in the first half of the day. And then, and then I, then I try to make my words, quote unquote, make okay. my words. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. And, and I know too, that, uh, you know, the last time I interviewed you was six years ago and that feels like a lifetime ago, given everything <laughs> that's happened. But at that time we talked a little bit about the egg and I know that you were a big fan of using short stories as a way to kind of improve your craft. What role do short yeah. stories play in your, in your development now, if any? Uh, pretty much none. I don't really have time to write them because I always have like a book that I'm working on. Uh, so I kind of like drifted away from short stories and now I'm just doing long form fiction nowadays. Um, I really do like writing short stories. It, it's a, it, it's a cool thing to do when you've got, when you get this, when you're like, Oh, that's a cool idea, but there's not enough meat in that for a book. Okay. So write a short story. Uh, but for me, I like the super duper short shorts. Um, um, like Isaac Asimov uh, was a master of this. He would have these short stories that were like between 500 and 1,000 words. And he made a bajillion of them. They were great. And I, love, I loved reading those because you don't have to put a lot of time investment into it. What I don't like reading are short stories that are like 10,000 words long. Yes. I'm like okay, I'm putting time and energy into, it's like an investment of my imagination to get into these characters and this story and the plot and what's going on. And then it ends. And then I'm like, uh, and it's actually particularly frustrating when it's a good story. And I'm like, that was a good story. I, I, really, I really wish that I could see those characters continue to do their thing and I mean, 
eh, come on. But, you know, and sometimes that does happen. Like, for instance, Arthur C. Clarke wrote The Sentinel, which then became 2001. And I mean, The Sentinel was, I don't even know how, it was some number of pages, not many. It was just a very short, short story. Uh, and it's shown, basically the entirety of that short story is shown in the first few minutes after the caveman thing in, in 2001. It's like people on the moon discover this thing and they're like, huh, what's that? And then, uh, you know, they uncover it and then it like broadcasts a message to Jupiter and then goes dark. And they're like, the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> and they realized it was like an alien civilization said, huh, looks like there's intelligent life on this planet. We'll put a thing on their moon when they're advanced enough to get to their moon and they poke at this thing, then it'll let us know that they're advanced enough for us to be interested. Yeah. You know? and that, but that was the whole story. And um, of course, all of that happened before I was born. All of those stories were written before I was born. But if I had read The Sentinel and 2001 didn't exist yet, I'd be so pissed off. <laughs> I'd be like, this is such a cool concept. Why are you not expanding this into a full? And then, of course, he did, you know, so yeah, yeah. it's all, all's well. But <laughs> I, I know you've said that your your time is really spoken for and you have a hard time finding any to read. Um, do you still read short stories um, at all? No, unfortunately, not really. I, I don't read anything pretty much at all. I'm so busy lately. Um, and also, it's kind of a busman's holiday, you know, when... If you spend all day writing, then when you read, I still have kind of my editing brain engaged and I'm looking and I'm just trying to enjoy a book, but instead I'm like, oh, that sentence structure was a little clumsy. If I had written it, I'd do it a little differently. And this is like me reading like a Stephen King novel, you know, <laughs> so it's like I've got no right to judge anything. It's just I'm in such an uptight, self-reflective editing mode. I, I have a difficult time getting out of it. And so, yeah, I, I just don't, uh, I don't read nearly as much now that I'm a writer as I did before I was a writer. <laughs> totally get that. Although I did see in one interview, you said that one of the last books you read was Recursion by Blake Crouch. Yes, uh, I, I would highly recommend it. And that, that was a while ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it is very good. Yeah, yeah. I, I know what you mean, though. Uh, it's almost impossible uh, it it kind of ruins story for you in a way. Uh, do you have that experience with it, movies as well? Oh, Are you watching God, movies yes. and like? <laughs> oh yeah, no. I it, every plot hole or stupid decision made by characters. Um, what really bugs me is when I can kind of see through the screen into the writer's room. You know, sometimes I'll be watching an episode of a show, uh, like a TV show, especially. And I'll, I'll be like, okay, no, I, I see exactly what happened in that writer's room. I'm like, you know, we'll be watching a, a show and my wife will say like, wow, this, this subplot is really boring. You know, this, <laughs> this character and in the right. And, and I'm like, well, that's because the writers needed to service this character's long running arc <laughs> and they didn't have any good ideas. And they had a fairly large amount of content for the primary storyline. So they isolated that character entirely to a secondary storyline, gave them a kind of a dumb and boring thing to do and made up for it by making it so that it didn't take up a lot of screen time. <laughs> and it's like, I could just, I know that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or there are other times when it's like, 
where I was where I'm watching a show and I'm like, this is three unrelated ideas that they crammed together into an episode because like no one of them was was good enough to to run for an entire episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is there a uh, a movie that surprised you or a television show that surprised you that didn't pull you out of it like that? Uh, certainly. Now the trick is remembering. Um, I, well, one thing I, I love more than anything else, I think most people do, is when a show or a movie outsmarts me. Yes. Like when I expect one thing and get another. And I, when I'm like, I genuinely did not see that coming, you know, and that, that is great. And one moment, and this is from like a really long time ago, but there, you know, it's from Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, there's like, they have, they have Heisenberg. Yeah. They, they have the main character, Walter, and they're going to kill him. And I'm like, I don't see any way out of this. Right. I, I just thought they, they're going to take him into the basement and kill him. And because they've got this new um, chemist who can make the drugs for them just as well. And, and he says, you know, I can get you Jesse Pinkman. That's his partner that they're also looking for. And they're like, no, you can't. He's like, yeah, if you, you know, if you let me live, I'll, 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 I'll give you him. I'll, I'll call him and I'll like lure him into a trap for you. And they're like, okay. And so they call Pinkman and hold up the phone and he's like, Jesse, they got me. You've got to kill the other guy. And so, and now because Jesse was physically closer to the other um, drug um, chemist than the, the hitmen were, he got there and he killed that guy. Now they couldn't kill um, Heisenberg slash uh, Walter White because he's their only, he's their only um, chemist left. And I was just like, holy crap, that was some good writing. I had no idea. I saw him. I'm like, he is dead. The only way out of this is some stupid plot contrivance that's going to piss me off. And no, it was a amazing plot twist that caught me off guard. And I, I still think of it you know, frequently. I was like that. I want to make my readers feel the way I felt when I watched that. Yes. You know? Yeah. That's a wonderful feeling and, and it doesn't happen often. So I, I love when, when it does. That's so true. It's great. Um, uh, let's see. Re more recently uh, done stuff is, um, well, it's kind of generic. It's like it's like you, you could ask any nerd on the street and you'll get the same answers as I'm about to give you. I love The Mandalorian. I liked WandaVision a lot. Um, uh, what are some of the other recent, uh, you know, completely out of my bailiwick, but I really enjoyed Bridgerton. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> what about um, um, personal updates? Uh, anything on from MGM about uh, Project Hail Mary? Um, no, 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 nothing specific, but okay. I mean, the, the status of it is, uh, MGM bought the film rights, not optioned, but bought. So that means they probably taking it kind of seriously. <laughs> and, um, we have Phil Lord and Chris Miller, uh, signed on to direct. We have Ryan Gosling, uh, signed on as the lead and we have Drew Goddard working on the screenplay and Drew adapted the Martian to film. And that went you know, pretty well. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> <laughs> it went really well. Drew's an amazing, uh, an amazing screenwriter. So I'm, I'm, couldn't ask for a better team of people. 
Um, but you never know what's going to happen in the film industry. You never know, like things completely outside of the control of the production and or the quality of the show story. Um, things are that are completely outside of that bailiwick are can can make or break whether or not something gets green lighted. That's that's pretty amazing because I think you said something very similar uh, when we when we talked in 2015 because The Martian hadn't been released yet. It's, it's, yeah. it's the same. You're saying the same thing now after going through that. Yep. <laughs> but you never know. Like yeah. our Artemis, an Artemis movie has supposedly been in production for quite a while too. You don't know. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. I think Project Hail Mary. I think it might get a little bit of a bump in interest from the studio. Um, and from the money men there who are making the decision, money men and many and money women, you know, <laughs> let's, let's not be sexist here. Um, uh, it might get a bump because I think it's going to sell really well. And so if we can come back to them and say like, yeah, so, uh, you know, we've sold like several million copies now, just FYI, you know, <laughs> I think that can, that can really help <laughs> yeah it, could, it can't hurt that's for sure can't hurt yeah. <laughs> well andy I, uh, I it's always so great to talk to you as we kind of wrap up today uh just kind of want to throw one more question at you uh just curious you know you were you were uh putting up blog posts and you've been at this for a while now and over the past couple of years this publishing industry has really uh been turned on its head like what's what's in the future near term far term what changes do you see coming to the industry for the for the publishing publishing industry, industry as a whole. yeah um, yeah I mean it's it's really it's really chaotic right now Amazon is probably the biggest disruption in publishing since the Gutenberg press I mean we, and I say that without any sarcasm yeah like um, uh, I think the future well there's a few good things uh, there, there's there's a lot of good things going on first off um, publishing and writing has now been like for lack of a better term, democratized. There's no longer an old boy network between you and the reader. If you write a book, you can self-publish it for absolutely zero uh, economic risk. That's pretty cool. Um, the publishing companies are merging into large entities right now. That can be good or it can be bad. It depends on the internal management of those entities. So for instance, um, Project Hail Mary is being published by Ballantine Books. But Ballantine Books is mostly just the same people who were at Crown um, Publishing. It's just, uh, which was also owned by Penguin Random House. Uh, uh, and so there's been mergers and reorgs and stuff like that, but it's the same people. And a lot of the publishers like to let the individual imprints do their own thing um, for that specific reason to have more diversity of storytelling. Um, so we, we can we can we can hope that things go well. Um, I, but I think in the end, um, you know, money talks and bullshit walks, and the 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 way you make the most money is by selling books that people like to read. And so no matter what, the industry, one way or another, is going to keep doing that. And so for readers, that's good news. For writers, it can be kind of unpleasant because, you know, maybe it'll be harder to break in because there are fewer major publishers. But for writers, it's also really cool because you can break in without any help at all. Yeah, I did. <laughs> all right, Zach. 
I'm going to kick it to you first. Uh, big takeaway, something caught your ear, something interesting. Well, I haven't read the book yet, but I feel like I have now. So, <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, when I listened to the interview, somehow I managed to block out a lot. Because I, I, I love his – like, I love The Martian – um, and I loved Artemis. So like, I've, I've been, I'm really excited to read this book and, uh, and I, yeah, I, I tell you one thing I really loved and, and, you know, you mentioned bef before we came up, we, we went to the interview, uh, uh, just about how you were able to interview Andy before. And it's, uh, he's such a fun guy and he's, he really hasn't changed that much. Like from your last interview, like he's kind of become, he's kind of remained the same dude, you know? And, but, but the one, one thing that stuck out that I really love is that he is clearly, I love how he acknowledged some problems he had with his craft and how with project Hail Mary, he really tried to nail, like he talked about character and he said that, um, you know, Mark Watney and the Martian was basically him. I think that's an early thing that all writers do. They, you, we really put a lot of ourselves into those characters uh, especially early on. And then, you know, he did very similar thing with Artemis. Uh, but I love how he just acknowledged, like, I want to get better at this. I want to, I want to make my characters more uh, relatable, more three dimensional where, you know, they have fault uh, flaws and problems. And I want to bring them off the page and make the character grow throughout the entire thing, instead of just be, being the same person they were at the beginning and at the end. Uh, I, I love that. I think that that, I think that was, that was great. Cause it's like, he had all this success come to him, you know, the Martian, we, we, we alluded to it really took off and it, you know, it'd be really easy just to be like, well, I made all this money and I'm, I'm my books are selling. Like I can just kind of like put on it, but he wants to get better. And it's always really awesome to see that. Yeah. That's honestly, that's the part that jumped out at me too. Like he, he went out of his way to tell a different story from the Martian. And, and I can guarantee there were people at his publishing company and maybe his agent and, you know, anybody that was willing to, to talk to him and give him business advice. They were probably all telling him, rewrite the Martian, like use that formula. You've got the magic formula, write another yeah. Martian. Watney like, on Venus or something, right? Yeah. There were, there yeah. were probably a lot of people in his ear telling him to do that. And the fact that he just, he stuck to his guns and, and pushed himself to do something different, like consciously, you know, steered clear from that storyline or that structure and came up with something different. That, that says a lot about him. Uh, but he totally lost me when he said he does the business stuff before he starts writing every day. Like, I, I can't even imagine. Like, I, I turn off my internet when I first sit down at my desk in the morning, and I don't turn it on until I've got the words done um, because that kind of stuff just floods in. And, like, it, to me anyway, it's just consuming, and it just sort of takes over. So, like, I, I have to get those words done first. Um, you know, more power to him for being able to do that. You know, in a weird way, I get it, though. Like, I think – I think the rationale is he sort of wants to clear the decks. Like he yeah. wants to get all that out of the way so that he can then just not worry about the writing as opposed to working on the writing and thinking like I got all this business stuff waiting for me when I'm done. So I can see it both ways. Yeah, but a lot of it is like pulling on a on a string on a sweater, you know. Like you, you answer this one email, or you open it up, and it just leads to something else. It leads to something else, and it just it feels like a, a black hole time suck. Um, but you know, I mean, he's still he's still pounding on his words every day. So you know, that that's what's key. I mean, everybody's got to kind of find their own their own um, their own process. Yeah, and I I offered uh, as I said before we went to the interview. I, I honestly think this is one of the best books I've ever read, hands down. Like genre aside, it, it is one of the best stories I've ever read. And I went to my author community and I'm, I'm going to host a book club. And I told them that. And some people said, well, is it, you know, is it sci-fi? And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like from a storytelling perspective, it is an, 
it's it's emotional it's satisfying it's got like the perfect ending i couldn't think of a, a of a better ending and i think the reason why i'm mentioning all this other than the fact that it's true and i really believe it is that he in it there was sort of a little throwaway towards the end where andy said like well but you have to write books people want to read and and i think that little statement is is lost on us so so many times because we we were, we want to write things that we want to write or we want to you know we want to explore things in our writing but like at the end of the day you have to write stories that readers want to read and and i i think this one's going to be massive the book and and whatever happens with the movie i think it's going to be huge yeah, absolutely. Um, and you didn't really go into his process a whole lot, but I got the impression that he's more or less a pantser. I mean, he said he had the idea of, of the ending in mind, like when he when he was writing the beginning of the book. But it didn't sound like he really plotted out a whole lot in in, in the middle. He just kind of let it, you know, the story go where it wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. It's so, uh, and it, again, Zach is sort of partially spoiled now. But like, there's there's sort of a midpoint twist that I was just like my jaw was hanging open. Like I just did not expect it. And, and you know, he talked about that element of storytelling with with breaking bad and and sort of thinking you know where the story's going to go and then having the creator take you in a completely different direction how delightful that is and um i, I just love that yeah I, I thought i was the only one who sat back and, and like rewrote television shows or novels while i was you know, i was gonna bring through. that up <laughs> so yeah I, I, I was gonna I was, say i actually feel re- so like when i'm watching television and movies and stuff i definitely have that problem but for some reason when i'm sitting down reading a book I can completely separate that and I don't I don't even think about like I would do this different or I'm not analyzing stuff like I can read a book and just enjoy it and I'm so fortunate that I'm able to do that because I think it would suck if I you know because again with movies and TV shows I'll sit there and I don't know what the difference is but I find myself you know trying to figure out what's going to happen next or like figure out what the writers are thinking but i don't do it as much with books i don't know why but i'm i'm glad that i'm like that <laughs> i think i spent too many years working as a book doctor to be able to just turn that off like i i do it while i'm listening to audiobooks you know like i'll hear the narrator rattle off a sentence and my, my brain is like it should have been written this way and you know like i'm rewriting the book as i'm listening to it so i, I wish i could turn that off well it goes back to what you said at the, at the top to um JD and uh, I, I I'm I have the opposite problem of Zach. I can watch TVs and movies and not get roped into second guessing and trying to figure out the plot, but books I'm so critical and and I think because of that I, it's there are a lot of arcs um, uh, or ARCs that I put aside. Like, do you the ones where you're where you're in them and like you start to feel that? Do you still finish them? No. Okay. No, now life's too short to read a book that, you know, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a bad book, but like if it's a bad book for you, yeah. um, there's no reason to really force yourself to get all the way through to the end. And for me, in a lot of ways, I just don't want that stuff in my head. You know, if, if sentence structure is clunky at the beginning of a book, you know, a lot of times that's going to follow through and, and I don't want it to start a period in my own writing. So I, I try to read, you know, as much as possible people that are better than me um, or on par with me, um, you know, but it's, it, it's, it's one of those things, you know, I, I think if you get caught up in it and you force yourself to finish a book that you don't like, like I just don't see the point in, in doing yeah. that. Why, why take the time? I used to be caught up in that. And then I, I heard the exact, it was almost exact. I think Chris Brogan said it. I think he said life's too short to finish bad books. And I was like, man, it's so true. And like, I have no problem now. If I get like 30% into a book, even if I've tried and I get that far, I'm just, and I, I have no problem bailing now. Yeah. I'm just like, okay, 
this is not worth my time. I have, I'm never going to read every book I want to read. Like, so I'm, I'm why waste my time with this one? It's so. especially tricky with ARCs because you know, I've got yeah. authors sending them to me. I've got agents, publishers, editors, all these people that I feel obligated to, you know, to finish it. Cause not only are they sending me a free book, you know, like this is technically it's part of my job. Um, and especially if it's, you know, the person sending it to me is somebody that I have a business relationship with, you know, it's, it's hard to, to walk away from, but I, I think you need to do it. Yeah. I'm getting well, you guys sold me on Project Tail Mary, and I just bought it. So hopefully, I don't <laughs> bail on that. Or it's I'm doing pretty well, right? It, it's out now. Like, I, I, yeah, I haven't checked it today. I saw it was at number five in the Kindle store the day it was released. It's still it's number five right now. Yeah, and that's it. it's number two in hard science fiction. Wow, what is in front of it. Oh, the audio book is number one. Oh, right. <laughs> oh wow, go. the audio book is one. The Kindle book is two, and the paper hardcover is three. Holy crap! <laughs> oh, and the Martian's number six. So he, he's he's struggling, is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> he's doing all right yeah he's doing okay yeah yeah fantastic uh guy great interview really enjoyed it and it was uh, really an honor to have him on the show so uh and as if that wasn't enough who's up <laughs> next week jd Oh man, I'm, I'm I get tired just saying his name out loud. Just because <laughs> the, the guy wears me out. Um, we've got Josh Mallerman back. I, I think what our second repeat customer, right? Like, yes, his second yeah. appearance. Uh huh. Um, and, and also a former Jeopardy question. Like I don't know if you guys caught this, but I, I think the the question on Jeopardy was um, Mallory is the sequel to what you know Netflix hit or something like that, and. You know, that's got to be cool to, to nice. see your own yeah. book up, up there on, on Jeopardy. Um, he's got a new book coming out called Goblin, which is really cool if you get a chance to read it. It's it's a bunch of little short stories and novellas all tied together around a town called Goblin. Um, so they all they all kind of you know tie in uh, at, at, at the very end. Um, and it was a fun read for sure, and I uh, can't wait to hear what he's got to say about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. It was uh, uh, also a great read. A qu- quick side note, I had a few, a few people in my author community say, Hey, Caroline Katniss, she, her energy reminds me of, Ma- of Josh Mallerman. I'm like, yeah, maybe she's like the female version of Josh. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Does she together. have bears and stuff in the video? Like all the stuff like Josh does. <laughs> he has his energy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Awesome. Cool. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.